0: I'm Dana Lloyd. Welcome to Soul Sister Conversations, the podcast where you will be inspired and empowered to connect more deeply with your authentic self as we explore topics of personal development, leadership, and spirituality. Your journey to your most authentic self starts right now. Sandy Maxwell has spent a good portion of her career in palliative and hospice care. She is passionate about it because it focuses on the whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Through her years of experience, she has learned powerful lessons from the dying, which she shares in this episode. This episode will also inspire you to ask yourself, what does it mean to truly live? Welcome, Sandy Maxwell, to Soul Sister Conversations. Thank you, Dana. It's wonderful to be with you today. I'm glad you've decided to have this conversation with me. You have spent a large portion of your career in hospice, having served for 20 years as CEO of Hospice Greater St. John. And under your direction, you started two other social enterprises, uh, Bobby's Hospice, which is a 10-bed community palliative care home, and The Hospice Shop, an upscale secondhand retail shop that helps fund care at Bobby's Hospice. Now, I know you believe strongly in palliative care and grief support, and I'm I'm just curious, what makes you passionate about palliative care?
1: Well, I used to be a nurse and uh, work in acute care. um, And it's, um, so I have a passion for caring for people and trying to help them live well. Um, Sometimes, unfortunately, when you're in the acute healthcare system, you're focused a lot on the disease. And sometimes the actual whole person gets lost in all of that. Um, So it's amazing. This model of care is exactly why most of us get into um, healthcare, into nursing. It's because you're caring for the whole person and um, not just the disease, but you're um, caring for their, their body, mind and soul. Um, so i um, really trying to help them live as well as possible until the end of life.
0: Mm. And can you, is there a difference between palliative and hospice? I hear those two words and they're kind of used interchangeably. Can you shed some light on that?
1: Sure. Um, typically palliative care is, is hospital care in a palliative care unit um, hospice care is usually community care um, basically the same thing you're caring for people in the final weeks and, and months of life
0: okay now how does one know when they're ready for hospice care because is that a prior I guess say a privatized thing is that I know if you have 10 beds you know obviously maybe not everybody can take advantage of that kind of care like how does one know if they're ready to to do that
1: Usually um, we have a palliative performance scale. It's a, a tool that we use to help um, understand when people are probably in their last six months of life. Um, it's easier to sometimes with cancer patients, it's easier to understand when they might be closer to the, the end of life because things tend to go in a more of a straight line than if you're end stage heart disease or, or lung disease. So it's for us, it's um, people who are six months or less, life expectancy of six months or less, On this palliative performance scale, you're probably at about 40%, meaning um, probably more bedridden than you are mobile, not eating as much, maybe more tired, your disease is progressing, um, and you really only have a matter of weeks and months. Mm.
0: And and why do you think palliative and hospice care is important?
1: Uh, It is the best care out there, and I wish actually our – healthcare system would model it um, throughout the entire healthcare system because it truly is um, patient-centered and it's person-centered. It's very personalized care, very dignified care. Um, It's very much about quality of life, living well, um, trying to control those. Our our experts are um, amazing at controlling pain and symptoms, trying to keep people as active as possible through to the end and giving them the best quality of life they can possibly give them. Mm.
0: Cause you said that, you know, you care for the whole person and you actually, I could hear your whole voice light up when you talked about, you know, the patient centered care and that you care for mind, body and spirit. And how do you do that? Well, we
1: focus on the person, not just on the disease. One of the first things we try to do, of course, is control the pain and the other symptoms that might be coming along with the disease. And we see this all the time. People come here and they may have been bedridden for a certain period of time because they are in a lot of pain. It's not being well controlled. Um, They come here within 24, 48 hours. Our expert team has them more comfortable. And then they feel better and they feel like they want to be part of living again and they can get up in a wheelchair and spend quality time with loved ones. And it's it's amazing to watch that happen. Mm. So we also um, we, you know, we have our team is trained not just in excellent pain management, but in providing care and comfort, support, love, um, compassion, listening to people's life stories, hearing their fears, um, letting this be a safe place um, you know, to be, to expose your whole person and to be cared for as a whole person.
0: Mm. So do you have programs that people would participate in? I'm thinking that, you know, obviously when people are moving into Bobby's hospice, that they know they're at the end of life. And I guess programs that you say we listen to their fears. How, How does that happen? Is it, are they put through a program or they just have counselors that can specially tend to each person?
1: Well, um, most of the people that come here, um, you know, they're not well enough to be involved in group programming or anything like that. Um, as I said, most of them are bedridden. Um, we do have, off, obviously, our nursing staff are specialists in, in what they do, but we have a social worker as well. And um, in the past, before COVID, we had some volunteers up on the floor. So it's just very personalized. It's just it's really taking a lot of time with the person. It's not rushing in the room, rushing out because you've got to be somewhere else. It's spending time sitting down, mm. holding hands, talking. Like, tell me about your life. Tell me about your story. Um, listening to their stories and their fears, and really just being in the moment with them. Mm.
0: And what happens to the person when you, when you have someone actually attentively listening to them? I mean, all of us are trying to get that in in our normal everyday lives. You know, do people see me? Do, can they hear me? And you finally have someone who is listening to your story. Tell me about your life story. You know, what do you see happen within the person when they have that um, special attention?
1: Um, It truly is one of the greatest gifts we can all receive is when somebody really listens to us. And Oftentimes, you can't take away the pain and the suffering, maybe the emotional, spiritual suffering, um, but to have somebody hear it, listen to it, accept it, be with you in those moments of pain and agony, knowing that they may maybe can't take it away, it's just amazing how people just feel a sense of healing because they've been heard. They've been... Um, one of the greatest things about hospice care is it's so non-judgmental. It doesn't matter to us uh, whether you're rich or poor, how you've led your life. Um, you know, it does not matter. We, we love you for who you are. We accept you for who you are and where you are at the moment. And uh, it's an amazing gift to give to people.
0: Mm, it, it sounds amazing. And I find it interesting that you use the word healing um, even though they're dying. Can you shed some more light on that?
1: There can be healing at the end of life, um, as people tell their life stories, as they reflect on that. As you know, perhaps sometimes um, people who've been distant from each other come together, and sometimes that does not happen, um, and that's fine too. But uh, there's uh, just a, a sense of peace. I think what happens. I hear this quite a lot from families who tell me their stories when they come here. Um, you know, their loved ones been sick a long time. Mm. And they're frightened and they're afraid to come here because it means the end of life is coming. Um, Oftentimes for the patient, they're a little bit more comfortable with that because they're the ones who've actually been sick for a long time. Um, They know they're coming closer to the end of life. They're a little bit more at peace. For families, it's like they feel like the minute they walk through the door, like they've just had the biggest hug in the world given to them, and their anxiety and stress level decreases immensely when the team supports them because that's a lot of our care too. It's not just for the patient, it's also for the families. Um, it's, it's really difficult to say goodbye to a loved one. And every single death is different because every relationship you have is different. So it's very different to say goodbye to a mom or a dad versus a child um, versus your spouse. Um, it's really um every time you go through that process, um, it's challenging and you need the comfort and support of people who who truly care and truly, truly understand.
0: And I'm thinking these must be special individuals that work at Bobby's Hospice. Are they mostly uh, registered nurses?
1: Yeah, mostly nurses. We also have some nursing assistants. Um, and as I said, our social worker, our nurse manager, our physicians as well. Um, tremendously caring and compassionate people. Um, oftentimes they're called angels, mm. um, but they, they practice and know the art of living well in the midst of dying and really just being with people through that last journey and truly is we all feel this way it's it's truly an honor and an absolute privilege and I think we all accept that while we can't stop the inevitable we can't we are not the lifesavers we can't stop the disease we can't save your life but we can make a difference in those last final weeks and months of life we can give you the best quality of life we can be with you on that journey we can make it as comfortable and as meaningful as you want as you know, whatever is in it for you, whatever you wish to do, we are there for you. And at Bobby's Hospice, we've done some amazing things that were important to our patients. We've had a wedding. One of our patients wanted to get married. Really? Um, before he died. So we were fortunate. We have a, in our building, it was a Sisters of Charity convent. So we have a, a large chapel. And so we were able to, um, to make that happen. And we even got our hospice shop involved because the patient was the male. So the, uh, his um, fiance she went to the hospice shop. They found a dress for her and shoes. Our staff did her hair and her makeup. Um, it was a whole team effort, and it was a, a beautiful day for the two of them as they got married. It was a nice special memory. Wow. We had a, a patient once who was, um, he, um, was the world's biggest Elvis fan, and while he was in his 40s, he really um, – He had a developmental um, delay and he was functioning about like a 10 year old, but our staff decorated his room with all of Elvis posters and everything. And we actually knew somebody who was an Elvis impersonator. So we held an Elvis concert in our chapel that day and came down and (laughs) and a number of other patients came. And it was wonderful. He truly believed he met Elvis that day. We taped it for him and the family showed it at his funeral. Um, that just made such a big difference to him.
0: I love it. Oh, my God. And just
1: recently, we had, um, in fact, she and the family are, are honorary chairs of our memorial walk. It's the Price family. Marilee Price um, was just in her 40s. She was with us last winter. She was a teacher, a music teacher, a wonderful person. And her dream was to live to see her oldest son graduate, um, Katie High. So this was back in uh, February and she knew she probably wasn't going to make that dream. So we were able to contact the high school, get the principal here, cap it down the whole thing. And we had a graduation ceremony in her, her room. And uh, she and her family were incredibly grateful for that. So those are
0: the kind of special things that we do. What's important to you. How can we make a difference? Wow. That's incredible. I have goosebumps all over. I mean, that's, (laughs) I have a graduate this year, so I know how incredibly special that is. So, um, Wow, you people do really amazing things uh, for people. And I can only imagine how gratifying that is. Um, It's tremendously
1: gratifying. In fact, the family was just here on Friday, um, her parents and her two sons. We were doing a newspaper interview because they're going to be in the paper this week about our memorial walk, which is coming up um, in two weeks. So it was wonderful to sit in that room and to listen to them talk about the care that we give and the difference that it makes. And it's all the little things that we try to put in place. And obviously, every hospice does this. This is what a hospice is all about. And we borrowed um, from others who went before us out west in, in Ontario. Um, they taught us how to do this. And we have now passed it on and taught Hospice Halifax and Hospice Fredericton and others. But to hear them talk about, you know, how the staff relieve their stress, how the staff treat them with such dignity and um, such respect and how they still instill life uh, in the middle of dying and how laughter is part of that and how they help them laugh and help them live well. And, you know, the dad talks about at the end, we have a beautiful candlelight leaving ceremony where the patient comes down on a stretcher and we have a quilt um, that goes over top of the stretcher and everybody stands in an honor guard with a candle to say goodbye to the loved one that was here and how much that meant to them and it's interesting because we put that in place 10 years ago, almost open 10 years now um, and we thought it would have meaning and then to hear somebody talk about how much it really means and how it's stuck with them forever Oh
0: my gosh, yeah, uh, what an amazing way to honor somebody's life uh, you know, I'm yeah, I think in contrast of probably what happens in a hospital. Um, I mean, I, I, the, the people that work
1: in the palliative care unit in a hospital are, are equally as caring and compassionate and do great work, but they're in an institution. Sure. And they have a lot of limitations um, that don't exist in a hospice, which is really a home-like environment, and it's designed to be the patient and the family's home away from home. Mm.
0: And I'm just out of curiosity: Do they get recommended if you know you're in your say your last six months of life, or does the the, the uh, family contact Bobby's Hospice and say, "Do you have room?" Um,
1: they can contact us, and uh, we can help them through the navigate them through the system. But we do have um, extramural that is in people's homes who are often working with patients and who will call us, and and, and they understand when somebody can't stay home through the end of life and and need to have. Uh, inpatient care and don't need to be in a hospital. Family doctors call us. We also have a palliative care team that goes to the family's homes and does an assessment. So um, there's a number of ways that you can be admitted
0: here. Mm. And what has been the impact on your own life, having all these amazing experiences and being this close to healing and death and living
1: it, it teaches you a lot, and I think one of the biggest things, and I would say to people, it teaches you how to live in the moment because too many of us, we go through life, we're living for tomorrow. You know, when I graduate school, when I when I get my first job, when I get my car, when I sell off, when I get my house, when I pay my house off, when I retire, it's always for tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. Um, so it teaches you that there's no guarantees of tomorrow, and I need to start living for today, um, being in the moment, and really appreciating what's around me and what's available to me, and the family that I have today, um, and enjoying the sunrise, and the sunset, and the weather, and all the things, and it also, it teaches you to just let go of the minutiae. What does it matter? Like, I often say, you know, all of us who get into a traffic jam, we get frustrated, because you're in a rush, I have to get here, like, I'm frustrated. Then I just say, it's a gift of time. (laughs) You know? I'm in this traffic jam and I'm sitting here and, you know, why am I going to sweat that small stuff? Because really when you're on your deathbed, none of that is going to matter. Mm. None of the, the the things that we get caught up in and frustrated with, you know, lineups at the stores now and things like that. It's frustrating, but it, none of it matters at the end of life. And it certainly is nothing that when I see patients here, none of them are talking about those life stressors. Right. Uh, you just sometimes wish they had life back. To forget about those stresses, just take them at you know roll with the punches,
0: right? Right. Yeah, then that's such a a, a great point, because we, we hear this, we read books about it, where people say, none of this is going to matter at the end of life. And you are telling us right now, these are not the words, the dying are uttering, wishing they had of, you know, you know, butted ahead of somebody in line at the grocery store to get home quicker. Or, you know, yeah. it, it's it truly yeah. is the the small stuff, like you say, being in the moment. Um, wh- what else have you learned um, from the dying ha- have have there been any special patients that actually imparted wisdom that they learned um, about living or dying?
1: Well, I don't, I don't do direct patient care um, as I'm the CEO, but um, I have certainly spent time with our patients and with our families. And you know, what always amazes me. And I just think, I hope I can be that courageous. I am so admire the courage of these people who live in the midst of dying, I think to myself, what would it be like to wake up one day and find out you have a terminal illness um, and you only have months to live? You know, how do you continue to embrace life and not just curl up in a ball and feel sorry for yourself and cry your eyes out? Like, how do you continue to go on living? And I'm just always so amazed and I just admire how they do it. And I've seen them do it. And I just think, wow, that has to take incredible courage. Mm
0: Can you shed any light on what you've seen, or you've, your uh, nurses might have talked about, in terms of how how do you do that? How are these patients doing that? Because I have witnessed it myself, and it you're right, it does take a lot of courage, and it's it's emotionally tough. On it creation.
1: is, but I, for us, once our patients come here, they've been on that journey for a long time, most of them, and so they've they've been able to come to grips and understand True. that this is. Um, this is their reality and they've been able to come to some kind of acceptance on that. Uh, what the nurses tell me, they just, um, it's, it's once you have your, your pain and your symptoms under control so that you can feel comfortable, you want to embrace life. You know, life is short. You want to spend those you know quality time with your loved ones and embrace every minute that you have. And yeah. mm. well,
0: That's a, that's a, an important point to make because it's, um, it's what we should all be doing, what you just spoke of a few minutes earlier. So only when you're faced with a a, a a deadline per se that it actually will throw you into enjoying every every bit of your life. Right. Mm.
1: And I'll tell you, one of the things uh, this has been a long journey. That for us, this took us um, six to eight years to get this up and running, and um, it was brand new in Atlantic Canada. Uh, we sell; we were trying to, you know, sell death and dying. That's not an easy sell trying to get government engaged for operational funding and some kind of brand new thing that nobody really understood. And it's like, why do we want that? Cause we, we actually want to live. Right. So um, there were many stressful, stressful moments. And I remember at one particular time I was really stressed and I sat down, I wrote my obituary, my own obituary. Okay. And the less biggest lesson I learned, if I didn't put that stressor in my obituary, then this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. This There's <laughs> was- no point in getting, you know, It's a problem to be solved. Um, It's maybe painful when you're going through it, but boy, if you're not going to put it in your obituary, then it's not really a big deal.
0: Mm, Good point. What should we be doing differently with respect to palliative care and of life care? What would you like to see happen?
1: Well, everybody has a right... Um, we're all going to die. Number one. Um, yeah,
0: if we haven't accepted that yet. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, that's our reality.
1: Ninety um, percent of us are going to die of a long-term illness, unless you know you die of a something sudden. And COVID, of course, has now come that that is happening for some people. Um, but most of us will die of a palliative illness, and whether that's um, you know cancer or end-stage heart disease, lung disease, etc. So all of us all of us have a right to have quality hospice palliative care in our final weeks and months of life. And so this is such important work for so many people. And I mean, I, I say there are so many charities in this city and elsewhere that just do amazing work, but they don't always touch almost a hundred percent of the population and the work that we do and our partners do in the hospital um, really makes a tremendous difference. And I'd like to see, more hospices, uh, obviously, throughout Atlantic Canada, and I'm proud to say there are at least two up and running and many more underway. Um, and I just would like to see people have more access to palliative, you know, physicians who really, they're the experts in, in, you know, the pain and the issues at the end of life, and they can really make a big difference in somebody's quality of life. Mm.
0: And I guess I didn't, so you, the Bobby's Hospice was the first one in Atlantic Canada? It was.
1: We're proud of that.
0: Yeah, that, that is something to be proud of because I'm just assuming that th- this exists everywhere. And I didn't realize this was so rare. So normally all of that is taken care of in the hospital, then generally, or has been.
1: Right. Well, um, the hospice, Victoria Hospice out in Victoria, BC, was the first in Canada. And they have been up and running since the 80, 19, late 1980s. Um, and then Ontario developed a number of them um, in the 1990s and early 2000s so um, we were able to um, those are our partners in care they were wonderful at sharing their models of care and teaching us how to get this up and running so um, 2010 we became the first in Atlanta Canada
0: Mm. Well, I didn't realize that. So that, and like you said, you know, death and dying is a tough sell. It's very tough, even though we're all going to do it. Um, we don't want to think about it. But as I'm listening to you tell all these special stories and the the kind of impact that you have on the end of it, uh, end of life, people's lives, I can only imagine that if we had more of a focus on that, that revered that, that that was also a special time. It often, I often think about how much attention we give birth. Very happy time people are coming into life, and that uh, we have a much harder time honoring. Uh, we do it when we have to, but leading up to it, it is a difficult time for most of us. So it um, is. We live in a very death denying society yes. <laughs> in North
1: America. You um, know, like in somehow we're always surprised when somebody dies, although it's such a, it's such a normal, natural part of living. And, of course, we are all going to die someday. So, uh, But it's interesting that we all go through. And I was one of those people, too, before I came to this work. Never thought about death as being normal and natural and thought about it as something that happened to somebody else, something was going to be so far away. Um, And then you live your whole life not really understanding that, you know, death is part of living and it is going to impact you at some point in your life. And, uh, yeah, so it's interesting. interesting.
0: So if you have someone in your life who's dying and they may not be at a hospice care, um, h- how do we support people who are dying? And I guess you've probably already touched on it to some degree in terms of what um, your staff does, but h- how do we support people who are dying?
1: Well, first off, you you need to give them a good pain and symptom management because
0: until you're comfortable, you really can't right.
1: embrace life and live well. Um, so they really need to, um, you know, see their family doctor or see a specialist. Hopefully, see a palliative care physician uh, for good pain and symptom management. And then uh, be with them, enjoy life, embrace life, do what's important to them, listen to them. Really, being with them and listening to them are the two biggest things. I think oftentimes people are afraid. I'll hear that here. Well, I don't. I don't want to come and visit. I don't know what to say. They're dying. No, they're living they're living people and you would talk to them the same way you've always talked to them. Uh, So they want to be treated like normal living people um, and have people around them and be loved and supported and enjoy what's important to them today.
0: And I think you're touching on something important when people talk about, I don't know what to say. So they tend to stay away from people who are dying and they need you the most. And, I, what what's occurring for me or bubbling up inside me when I hear you say that is that I think we're not comfortable being in the present moment often dealing with what is. Because um, I know I've had an experience uh, like that with someone who was dying and it was the initial visit, you know, when you had to sort of address the elephant in the room. Um, yes. But it was very powerful to sit with the person in presence and just to be OK with the emotions. You know, I, don't, I think we're often not OK with all the emotions that arise and and the presence that we often don't live in our life, but we know it's required at that moment and we're afraid of it.
1: Exactly. Um, We all, we want to fix things. We're all fixers. So it's like, we want, we don't want you to be in pain. We want to take it away. Oh, don't worry about that. Don't talk about that. Oh, you'll get better. Just, you know, keep eating. It's like, you need to be with people in their pain. That's the greatest gift of all is to hear them, listen to them. Don't take it away. Let them say what they want to say. Embrace that. Be with them. Love them through it um, and listen most of all and just allow the pain to be there because um, you can't take it away
0: and the other thing you you say you're passionate about or you, you feel strongly about is the grief support. and so how do we support family members who are grieving because grief is an animal until I went through it myself it's a whole other thing. Um, it's tough work it's, it's really tough work
1: <laughs> and we're not prepared for it. we're not born with natural coping skills we're not born with Okay. If somebody, if my mother dies, this is how I cope with it and get on with it. Um, again, it's, um, people have to go through a process, and every death is different uh, for people, and everybody has different coping skills. And um, and it's not about fixing it, and it's not about expecting somebody to get over it. It's like somehow in our society we think, well, you know, if you haven't, if you're still talking about it three months later, you can get over it. We're well, never going to get over it. You're going to live to learn differently without that loved one in your life. And it's going to an ebb and flow. There'll be times when you feel like you're doing okay, and then there'll be times when you feel like you're not. And you need to be able to cry, and you need to be able to talk, and you need to be able to tell your story over and over and over again. And people need to be able to hear you and embrace your pain and allow you to be in it and not judge you because you're not over it in what society thinks is a certain amount of time. Um, Everybody grieves differently, and um, it's a long process, and it's hard.
0: It is. I had someone on the podcast that described grief as you know they have a relationship with grief, right? And some days it's a good relationship, and other days it's not. And Absolutely. Uh, yeah, ebbs and flows. Ebs and flows. Yeah, it's so true. Um, and,
1: and oftentimes people. Um, you know, when they grieve for longer than what society thinks should be an appropriate amount of time, they lose their friends and people who, who think, you know, why isn't she over this? I'm tired of hearing it, about it. But uh, those, are the, those are the times that you need to stay with that person and, and, and listen to them. And if it, they tell their same story a thousand times, it, it does them good. That's the greatest gift.
0: Yes, it's true. And what is it with that, um, that you tell your story over and over again? Because I've I've lost my mother, I, f- I would find myself telling it over and over, again, almost living the details. And somehow there was healing in that. And I don't know if I was expecting a different response when I would comb through that. But... Um, There's absolute healing
1: in telling your story and and having others hear your story. So Mm. there's a lot of healing in that. And a lot of the work that we do in grief support, you can do one-on-one individual counseling with a professional, but a lot of the healing comes when we have our grief groups and people, other people who've lost loved ones uh, are supporting each other through that process because they all understand what it's like to feel like what you feel like.
0: It feels like death has a lot to teach us or, or the whole dying process in that it's not just about the other person, but about the other people that are involved in it and how it challenges us and pushes us to show up and be in the present moment and deal with emotions. Death is a teacher. It is, and I know you've been challenged by COVID nineteen as all of us have, and as you said, many of the charities. And how has COVID nineteen changed it? Changed how you deliver care or, or impact at your organization?
1: Yeah, it affected us in two ways. Um, first off, we're um, over sixty um, percent funded by our community, and a lot of that is through in person uh, fundraising events. Um, which obviously had to be immediately canceled. So um, we lost a significant source of revenue from the community. Although I must say our community is, is wonderful to us and they continue to donate, but we couldn't have our summer barbecue that we always have. We can't have our memorial walk in person. It's gotta be a virtual walk and I don't know what the outcome of that will be. So obviously financially, um, we lost a lot of money as other charities and, and other businesses have. And we're struggling through that. Luckily, we've had a little bit of a surplus that we're leaning on. Um, We also launched a brand new, I'm going to talk about it, Win With Hospice. Um, That's a a brand new um, fundraiser for us. So if you go on our Win With Hospice website, there's auctions, there's raffles, there's 50-50, there's all kinds of things, and people are supporting us that way. And our shop was closed for a period of time as well as other businesses were shut down. It's back up and running, so I'm happy to say there's some income coming there. The biggest impact in our care, um, that was dramatic because we are a home away from home and we have a lot of wonderful living rooms and dining rooms and common spaces for families to gather. And um, oftentimes different families going through this journey support each other and lean on each other because they know what it's like. All of that changed, we closed to the public we had to limit the number of families in here. At one point, we were down to just one family member visiting. When they came in, they had to wear a mask. They had to go straight to the, fam- to the patient's bedroom, and they couldn't leave the patient's bedroom. So that meant all of our living rooms, dining rooms, kitchens, all of those special areas where families could gather were closed. Our staff had to wear masks and gowns, and um, they couldn't hug people, they couldn't hold hands. So while we still gave great patient care and great pain and symptom management, we didn't, we weren't able to give the best of what a hospice gives. And that's about the life of hospice and the living in the moment and families being together and the hugging and the holding hands and all those special things. We also have a music therapist who adds tremendous value and we had to, he was, he couldn't be here for a period of time. So all of that special living well stuff that hospice does so well um, was gone. That was hard. It was hard for it was hard for the staff um, to deliver that kind of care. It's so against what we normally do. For the patients and the families who were here during that time, they didn't know anything better. So they thought they were happy that the patient was getting great personalized care, uh, but they didn't realize that what they were really missing is the best of what hospice
0: does. Is, yeah. So your fund, so your fundraisers you have, you have the win with hospice and the virtual walk, which is that that you still have a date set for that 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 you'll be
1: walk week, and it starts on September nineteenth and runs until September twenty fifth, and we're asking our supporters, you know, do do your own personal walk in memory of a loved one and and raise money for us and send us your money, and um, hopefully we'll, we'll we're hoping to raise seventy five thousand dollars. Um, and that would
0: help us pay the bills. And so if someone wants to participate in that, where do they go? What, what is the website? Do they register?
1: You don't have to register in advance, but if you want to make an online donation, you go to our regular hospice website, hospicesj.ca, and uh, make a donate that way. If um, You can drop your check off here. Um, you can do an e-transfer as well. You can call us over the phone. We'll take your credit card.
0: Mm. And this, I think this is a really important point to talk about, you know, fundraising for hospice, because hospice was really built on a really great donation initially, was it not? It was, yes. Actually, Bobby Lawson,
1: um, she was a volunteer with us for 20 years, um, and this was a big dream of ours. We had a staff of two people. We had office space in the hospital outside the palliative care unit. And this was our really big dream because we had done the research and found out what was happening in other parts of Canada and thought, wow, St. John can benefit from this kind of a, a community hospice. Um, so she made a, a large donation to us, unfortunately, as she was facing our own terminal illness, which allowed us to mount a capital campaign and set us right on the path of making this happen. So um, it's been a community effort from the start um, we appreciate every single donation, um, big or small, it doesn't matter. We make every penny count. I can assure you of that. We try to treat our community donations as if they were coming out of our own personal pocket, and we try to be as frugal as we can. We are in the business of healthcare. We are a small community hospital, so oftentimes, um, you know, we don't control all the expenses, and particularly now, we've had to buy a lot of um, personal protective equipment for our staff to right. keep them keep our families safe and of course because everybody's in need of masks and gloves in the healthcare world of course those prices have prices have gone up significantly challenging us to come up with more money to pay for it all Um, we are really grateful we have a partnership with the department of health that does provide us with um eight hundred thousand dollars a year but our budget's over 1.2 million so we have to raise a significant amount on our own um, to keep the doors open and to pay all the bills wow
0: so a huge challenge. It's based on a lot of generosity. I mean, it was built on generosity, and and it's generosity which will keep the doors open. So if people are feel moved to support your organization, um, they go to your we website.
1: Would be, we would be eternally grateful, and we will be here for you when you uh, you need us.
0: I just have a last couple of questions. I call my soul questions. <laughs> what has become abundantly clear to you?
1: Well, hospices. Is- wonderful health care and it is the kind of care we would all want for ourselves and our loved ones for certain. Mm.
0: And lastly, what does the world need most, do you think? Love. (laughs) (laughs) That's a popular answer. We need love. Yeah. Love,
1: understanding, tolerance, uh, acceptance, um, kindness. Um, A lot of what we do here is being kind to others uh, and and somehow in our, our world's you know, evolution and the evolution of all this technology. I don't, I I think some of our kindness is, is gone. Mm. (laughs) Uh, It's, it's, uh, yeah. So it's, we need to, we need to have kindness. Mm.
0: Well, this has been an awesome conversation. I appreciate you giving us uh, your perspective on end of life. I think this will challenge people to think about it in a little different way. And like you said, it's not—it's hard to sell death and dying. Um, <laughs> so to have a conversation about it, but I love the way that you framed it, and uh, I appreciate your time today. Thank you, and I
1: thank you for inviting me and, uh, and allowing this conversation to happen. I think these are important conversations. I challenge everybody who's listening is live well, uh, live well today, enjoy what you have in your life today. Enjoy the little things. Don't sweat the small stuff, uh, embrace those you love. Um, be in the moment.
0: Mm, great messages. Thank you. Thank you. That was such a great conversation. If you loved it too, subscribe to the podcast. So you don't miss an episode please go to iTunes to rate and review this podcast. And if you want to continue the conversation, connect with Soul Sister Conversations on the Facebook and Instagram pages. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook at Dana Lloyd Leadership, on Twitter at Dana underscore Lloyd, and of course, on LinkedIn. See you next week.